Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Lynn Pattinger from the University of Warwick about her new book, Work, Consumption and Capitalism, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in December 2015. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Lynn Pattinger, who is an Associate Professor in Sociology at the University of Warwick. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Work, Consumption and Capitalism, which was published by Palgrave in 2016. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Nice to be here. Um, so this is a really interesting um, book because it tries to make accessible a whole range of debates about contemporary life, contemporary consumption, and to connect them up with production and work. And one of the ways you do this um, is through a series of really accessible examples. Before we get into that, I'm, I'm quite interested in where the project came from and sort of what gave you the idea to write about this. It's been a really long time in the making, and a little bit of that is because Wanting to make it accessible means really having to pay quite a lot of attention to the style of writing, so a lot of rewriting. But it's also because I really wanted it to, to be an interdisciplinary book, and that meant learning some literature in quite uh, disparate kinds of fields, as well as the subfields within my own current discipline, which is sociology. So knowing the literature on sociology at work, and also knowing something on sociology of consumption, and understanding economic sociology. So, I mean, it's got a long, in some sense, a really long trajectory coming out of my early studies because things do, you know, those early studies are really formative of where you end up. I had a degree in politics and economics and then I discovered sociology as something that made so much more sense of the world around me, partly because of its much greater openness. And my PhD was on retail working and I was exploring the um, importance of branded organisations for understanding what kinds of work sales assistants ended up doing. And I never really wanted to write the book of that PhD, but some of those ideas um, around the production of consumption, which was the title I was kind of always working with, although it's not the title on the book, but the idea about the way in which work is involved and intrinsic to making a consumer culture was the starting point of the book and it came out of that. And then obviously things take a long time and I'm a slow thinker. So things take a lot, took a long time to be able to form in such a way that they could become you know, a series of nine related chapters that covered things that are not normally kept put together um, in a way that hopefully kind of makes sense of a particular bit of consumer capitalism. Can you introduce those kind of core ideas that you bring together? Um, the thing you do at the start of the book is, is you talk about genes as a way of kind of thinking through um, almost the kind of entirety of the book's project. Yeah, um, genes are good to think with. Um, and I think that particularly in some elements of anthropology, but in some sociology as well, there's um, an emerging 
desire to kind of follow the product as a way to understand the complexity of partly of supply chains and of how production happens. So how things go from the raw material of cotton and indigo dyes into factories where they are formed as denim and then how they are cut and sewn into jeans and then sold. And so jeans make it possible to think about those kind of material forms of production but because they make it also possible to think about branding and fashion and personal identity, then they get to be just a great example. And I am um, a fan, I'm a sociologist, but I'm a fan of um, anthropology in particular, who doesn't love Daniel Miller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his Global Genes project with Sophie Woodward just struck me as providing some ideas, which I then looked for some other readings about denim in order to tell a story about um, how genes get produced and how they get consumed to pull out some of the big themes of the book so we can locate something really ordinary and mundane within global structures of capitalism and because every time I've asked my students how many of you own genes maybe two don't own a pair of genes but so they're good to think with the, the other thing that uh, the introduction to the book does as well as kind of giving us this really um, everyday and an almost normal example of these big themes is to try and draw some boundaries around what you're thinking about when you're thinking about work. Um, there's a very kind of specific type of work and how it relates to consumption um, more generally. So can you kind of yeah. tease out those boundaries? Sure. I mean, the boundaries are always fuzzy, um, but, but boundaries are always best when they're fuzzy, when you don't have too strict a sense of what the typology should be. And it's back to this idea of the production of consumption. So I wanted to think about what forms of work might go into producing a consumer culture and think particularly about those that in some way contributed to the production of meaning and therefore to the production of economic value. And that led me to pull together forms of work that are not normally considered as in any way comparable. So the obvious um, forms of work that are not considered comparable, which are really significant in the book, are work like advertising, branding and marketing, which we might frame as creative labour, as culture work, but which I would prefer probably to think of as cultural intermediary work. But to put those alongside service sector work, which was the point of entry into the project for me. And although we have to recognise that those are kind of radically different in some ways, in terms of rates of pay, in terms of levels of autonomy, educational background of people who end up doing it, and also in terms of kind of the permanence of the work and its kind of structural position within um, the labour market and um, economic structures. Nonetheless, what they share and what it seemed important to pull out a little bit is a real importance in contributing to the production of a consumer culture, so to making possible other people's consumption. So I wanted to use that to think about what those kinds of, uh, how that might be produced. And that meant that I've got a range of kind of, well-known and um, easily identifiable jobs like sales assistant to consider, um, to think about advertising and marketing not as just entities that are distant and abstract, but which are actually done by specific kinds of people. But also to draw attention to um, some of the kinds of jobs that, um, or David Graeber calls them bullshit jobs, jobs that don't necessarily, not necessarily being researched, that perhaps the world could live without. So my favourite is the cool hunter. So the person who goes out into um, 
urban spaces and looks at street style and tries to transform that into something that can be used in fashion industry, for example, but as well as the, the cool hunter, we might think of stylists and brand positioners. So there isn't lots of research on any of those kinds of occupations. So it's worth thinking of them under the lens of the cultural intermediary, I think, in order to see what might they be doing to make uh, the consumer culture possible. Now, one of the things you've alluded to quite a few times already in the discussion is, is this idea of kind of um, capitalism, global capitalism. Um, and one of the things you do is kind of talk through quite quite clearly various different ideas about what capitalism means and how it uh, helps us to understand production and consumption. Uh, I think the really useful thing in that is the way that there are particular ethical, uh, perhaps moral implications mm. attached to the particular theories of capitalism that we might be comfortable with and we might use. I wonder if you could uh, say a little bit about that kind of ethical moral dimension uh, to thinking through things yeah. of capitalism, because it's important all the way through the book. Yeah, think. yeah. I mean, I think there are multiple dimensions to it, and one of them is that my experience of working with students and thinking about issues of consumer culture and my intended audience is um, is students, although perhaps other people might find it interesting as well, is uh, that they're interested in and concerned to understand their own practices in ethical and moral terms. So to frame ethical and moral relationships within capitalism struck me as significant. But kind of conceptually, um, it seems always to me important to notice the implicit normative position taking of academic work and to think that through to acknowledge it to see what implications and effects it might have for the kind of arguments and the kind of reasonings that um, scholars might be working with themselves and as partly students might be thinking critically engaging with the work that they're reading so when they're reading work which they can start to identify as having been derived from a particular moral position then they can assess it with that in mind so um what to say about that i think the obvious example is that um many scholars in this field are drawing their ideas from marx and from marxist thinkers and following on from that and he's the easy it's the easy example for thinking um these kind of ethical questions through so i make use of albert o hirschman's ideas um framing and typology of economic thinking to read marx as um claiming that um destructive markets are implicitly what uh, how we might think about capitalism and to set that against other kinds of ways of thinking about capitalism as having different kinds of connotations different kinds of moral effects so um i guess i'm thinking there that Economics, which is a discipline which denies its moral range or its moral compass or the way in which it might be making implicit claims around the nature of um, what markets are doing, that claim to neutrality, it seems that attending to the ethics within that claim to neutrality is a really significant way to understand and to um, to argue against some of the claims that economists might make about human action, about the rationality of decision-making, about the claimed efficiency of markets and things like that. And in, in making that kind of statement, I'm showing something of my own um, positioning there. So drawing on Fulcade and Healy, who add a little uh, fourth dimension 
mentioned to Hirschman's original three ways of dividing the moral status of economic thinking and economic ideas to draw on their idea of the market as a moral project, so that markets do moral action. They don't just reflect or step outside of the society. And that's really insignificant to me, to thinking about um, thinking about how consumer capitalism is working. I mean, the, the other two kind of ground-clearing uh, moments in the book um, are thinking about explaining consumption and also accounting for ideas about work. Mm. And... I mean, we've we've covered a little bit, you know, the kind of the idea about uh, what work is, particularly in terms of how you define um, your use of things like cultural intermediaries. Mm. But I guess the thing we haven't thought about is, is what we mean by consumption. So, yeah, mm. I wonder if you could kind of account for consumption. Account for consumption. I'm kind of tempted to say, ask me another question. <laughs> what a big thing to have to do. Um, we've got... Let's not, I'm not actually certain when we would date the start of that, but certainly a shift within cultural studies and within the sociology to attend to consumption and to think about why it's important. So certainly in British sociology in the post-war period, industrial sociology dominated. This was a sociology of manufacturing, of workplaces, largely of men's form of work. Um, and there was a lot of attention to Um, that is a significant marker of identity and I will always argue that work is a significant marker of of, of identity, of social belonging, of meaning making in the world. But I think that the shift to attending to consumption was important and was really um, worth doing. It's a crucial part of the stuff of social life Um, and it needs to be taken seriously because it is in itself serious. So you've asked you've asked me about the ethical dimensions of markets. So the ethical dimensions of the goods that we end up buying and how they've been produced, what environmental effects they might have and what kinds of working conditions the people who produced it are worth attending to. But I think consumption is also worth attending to because it's frivolous and pleasurable. And so thinking that through and making sense of that In sociology, I think the dominant way of thinking about it is that consumption is a source and a marker of identity, and that's important. I think more recent work that explores the ordinariness and the mundanity of consumption also matters as well. So toothpaste is is an important item of consumption as branded denim might be. So we need to attend to, to that as part of the stuff and the fabric of everyday social practices. So there's that sociology of consumption that's worth attending to. I think where the book moves into other kinds of disciplines or related disciplines is in the way it attends to um, how consumption is um, kind of systematised. And I'm thinking here particularly about branding, but also I think about the fashion system within that. So what kinds of markers of social difference is in, are embodied or implicit in a brand? Are these illusory kinds of differences? What senses might they matter to people and how might they matter to people? So that kind of how how the kind of the business of consumption is organised is significant to understanding how people consume. And the other thing I'd want to really draw attention to is to the history and to the geography of consumption. And that's partly because comparison is wonderful. We can understand something of a particular phenomenon by thinking about what it is not. So in the discussion of consumption, I wanted to 
think a little bit about the emergence of a consumer culture, attend to the ways in which that might have happened at different temporal moments in different places, and think about what the meaning of that might be. And a theme running through the book, um, not always successfully because the dominant a source of research on consumption is in Western Europe and in English-speaking places, so North America in particular, and perhaps for good reason, because American brands are often globally dominant. But I wanted really to make sure that there were examples of consumer practices that were not just in Western Europe, because how can we speak about a consumer culture as a Western Europe if you visited Singapore or Dubai or you've seen any of those photos of mega malls, then you know that that's just not a sustainable position at all. But what local differences are visible within that global kind of framing of consumption? Does Starbucks have the same meaning in Japan as it has in Seattle? And clearly it doesn't. But what's the nature of that kind of local difference? And what other kinds of forms of consumption might matter more if we're to understand consumer culture in Japan rather than just exporting American models. So it was something I wanted to attend to and to invite readers to think about themselves. Um, Yeah. So one of the things you do in terms of kind of broadening out that focus, uh, not just globally, but actually in thinking through elements of uh, markets, production and consumption, that really aren't attended to particularly well by economics at all mm. is to think about embodiment, mm-hmm. bodies, and also affect and emotions. Yeah. And I wonder if you could say a bit about um, how bodies and emotions play a role in um, work um, and consumption. Yeah, sure. I mean, I start with a really banal observation, which um, is going to sound a little bit ridiculous, but if you're going to work, then you need a body. So from that sense, thinking about how bodies shape work so and how work shapes the body is the conceptual starting point for that kind of idea. Um, and that makes it possible to think through some of the dimensions of what all contemporary work involves in my mind, but specifically the kinds of work that are involved in producing consumption involves. So that's things like the craft labour of work, it's knowledge work and what's needed by knowledge workers, it's the dimensions of emotional and aesthetic labour. So conceptually the starting point would be what is now a very common rejection of the Cartesian position of mind-body dualism. So it doesn't make sense to think about work if we hold on to a divide between mental labour, which is elite and middle-class or upper-class labour, and manual labour, which is working-class routine and mundane forms of labour. So some of the forms of work that I would be interested in, say, fashion design or any kind of design, in fact, which in some framings would be labelled as knowledge work and have those connotations of requiring specialist skills knowledges and expertises and therefore implicitly work with the head but impossible to do without sensory experiences of the materials that you're working with so attending to that as craft labor by noticing what bodies do in order to be able to produce um interesting beautiful desirable products struck me as really important really interesting so aesthetic judgments that a brand designer might make when they're thinking about redoing a logo and they want a color that is you know modern and fresh and so the tacit jump 
decisions about what's the right green, what's the right grey. And green is a great one, actually. And I could rant for hours about what kinds of green are good green. So not a green that connotes poison and slime, but a green that connotes freshness and um, nature or whatever it might be. So that's attention to tacit dimensions of skill. That's attention to the sensory and to the aesthetic and to their interplay. So knowledge workers are not free-floating brains would be the simple way to think about it. But the other thing that really matters when we're thinking about the nature of work here is the figure of the consumer and its relationship to the worker. So if an advertiser is generating a campaign, who are they imagining as the consumer? To some extent, they're drawing on research with consumers because there's loads of research with consumers, focus group after focus group after focus group. But some of the creative labourers are also drawing on their sense of who the consumer might be. So that can be fellow feeling, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, or it can be thinking, well, what what would my grandma want and how might I persuade to her? So that kind of very kind of social relationship that's imagined and that is part of um, doing that work well is significant. And the other way in which the imagined consumer matters is, and this brings us back to the service work and why service work is an important part of the story, the imagined consumer is the person who the sales assistant is invited to identify with in order that the sales assistant stops being quite so bothered by how rude the customer has been to them. So you're upset by the the coffee you've been made isn't very nice, so you're going to get shouted at. Well, all the training manuals, all the management rules are not to let on about that. And that's been well studied as emotional labour and involves a labouring body um, who controlling feeling and that kind of thing. I think the crucial point I draw on in relation to your question about consumption is that the consumer has to be imagined in order for that to be possible. So the figure of the consumer is a significant cultural figure. I wonder if we could focus in on on ethics in this, Mm -hmm. because you described a series of situations that really have um, several moral um, or, or ethical implications and uh, attachments and associations mm-hmm. uh, running throughout them. Um, and chapter eight returns to the kind of ethical concerns in the book. Uh, and you really you know, try and talk about good jobs and good work. So what, what are they? You know, well, I think that's a brilliant question and it's an impossible question. And it's one that I really would like to be able to answer. So if we think about... Um, like cosmetic sales workers, and I'm drawing here in my example on Page Land study of cosmetic sales workers. So um, they're all women. They're working for global branded organizations. They're low paid. They're treated commonly very badly by customers because customers see them as lower status, uneducated, and there to provide service. So why is it that they get pleasure from their work, they enjoy their work, they are quoted in land study as commentating that getting work on a cosmetic sales desk is a form of affirmation of their beauty because women who are not attractive don't get those kinds of jobs, which is one of the subtle inequalities that emerges when you look at front-facing service work and consumer culture. So what does that make us think about what counts as a good job? If someone gets pleasure from it, they're making themselves up every day, 
they feel beautiful and powerful and attractive because of that. And there are lots of other kind of comparable studies in service sector work. So that, to my mind, raises questions around how sociologists of work have traditionally thought of what counts as a bad job. So a bad job is one where you're low paid and you have low status and you don't have much autonomy. And the sales assistants don't have any of those things, but they have something else, which is part of their connection to consumer culture. And that's why it's impossible for me to answer your question about what's a good job, because that's not my sense of what a good job is. But I can think my way into why the cosmetic salespeople might find that to be um, a kind of, of good job. So the the kind of the role of or the positioning of work within the um, a wider sense of global consumer capitalism seems kind of significant. So we have other studies like Eileen Otis's um, accounts of hotel workers in China who um, feel like they gain status from understanding the cultural norms of how they should behave and then being able to dismiss the very rude and aggressive businessmen and things like that. So if you think about good workers, as autonomy, as freedom from excessive management, um, as are really important then and that's certainly something that in the literature on um, cultural intermediaries and creative labor comes out as really important and they raise a dimension which i think is also present in accounts of service work which is um around the working conditions under which they are um, employed so these are well documented often instances of precarious labour, so looking for the next contract, all the networks that you have need to be constantly mobilised in order to be able to get uh, get that work. Um, or you're working in some way where you're um, compromising on your creative or your aesthetic uh, autonomy or preference in order to find a wage, in order to live. So in fashion designers, hoping to have your own label but ending up working, designing children's clothes for a, ma- a major chain store or something like that. So those kinds of precariousness, and I think it's also often connected to work intensity, so to long hours, to lots of effort that have to be put in, to unstable contracts and to an uncertainty over pay. But on the other hand, when you read interviews with creative workers, this is some of it celebrated and some of it they've been invited to celebrate, but it's desirable work. So, again, that raises questions around the nature of decent work and what that might um, involve. And taking it back to the example of genes, underpinning this is also the, the work that I don't really study, but I think is significant and is impossible to imagine consumer culture without, which is the labour of production. So who's working in supply chains, um, who's growing the cotton, picking the cotton and um, sewing the clothes. And those are very often not in decent work conditions. Yeah, I mean, it's a really great um, invitation almost to move beyond just descriptions of um, how people use particular objects or experiences for their identity. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of question about who is labouring, in what conditions, etc. to try mm-hmm. and bring them together and think, um, I think a bit more sort of reflexively, both as a reader of the book and then also as a, as a social scientist as well. And this, I, I think, brings us to the kind of uh, the position that the book closes in, really. And, and there's a kind of 
sort of sad ending to the book, which, you know, you sort of say that uh, the central theme in work consumption and capitalism is how markets, uh, sorry, how work makes consumption. And the sad ending of the story is that markets seem inescapable. And obviously this has a relationship to the kind of moral ethical dimensions. But I wonder, you know, why the downer at the end of the book? I know, it's really cynical, isn't it? Maybe I was tired when I finished it. That seems really plausible. I guess I was feeling... The more I was looking at consumer capitalism, um, particularly when you were attending to the dynamics of work as well as to um, the dynamics of consumption, it seemed just more and more all-encompassing, more inescapable. So there's quite a long discussion in the book about emotion and about the way of working on emotion. And I mentioned that in the context of service work, but I think in the context of branded environments where feelings are captured and it's designed to capture feelings, it's really significant part of our contemporary culture. So what do you persuade someone who um, has got a house full of stuff to spend their income on? Well, you give them experiences so they can go to you know, Disneyland or something like that, and go on a Guinness tour. Um, my favourite is the uh, Wolfsburg factory um, for Volkswagen in uh, Germany, where there are two enormous towers which are glass-fronted, which the cars, when they're finished, are lifted up and then they're shown before they're sent off to the person who's ordered them. And you can pay to go on that tour and be taken up in that lift. To feel, to feel what in relation to that brand? And irony that it's Volkswagen with all this emission scandal that's been happening recently. So the, the kind of the capturing and the management of feeling, the capturing of experience and the remarketing of experience strike me as, as ever-present. We see it in control of city public spaces and things like that. So I guess I felt like it's inescapable. Um, we're sat here, um, I'm promoting my book, you're going to tweet about your po- the podcast that I've done with it. We're you know working to create value for the publishers and consumerism like of many kinds is so central to the operation of, of, of global capitalism. Um, and it's at the heart of what I think is a debt-driven economy. Um, so consumers encouraged to pay, buy more with credit cards, with remortgaging their houses, etc. So it did feel like it's kind of inescapable. And there are some pleasures within consumption, let's not deny that, including the pleasures of working to do that. So to create an advert that you think is wonderful, there's a pleasure there. That's great. Um, but I kind of got the feeling that consumerism captures so much of the life of the mind. So where do you go next? Are you doing another project in, in this area or you know, you kind of sell your accounts with global capitalism in the market. <laughs> what, what comes next? I've got a couple of things that are related to this. One draws much more explicitly on the ideas of what kind of ethics are there in a market economy. And that's a project that looks at green workers. So in part, those are people who are often doing quite small business work with um selling green baby products, for example, but also their environmental consultants. So I'm thinking about their private sector organisations, what kinds of ethics, uh, what kinds of environmental ethics might emerge and might be compatible with the demands of uh, profit-making and profit maximization, which 
we understand is so significant to uh, to global capitalism more generally. So understand how people position themselves as ethical actors in quite complex scenarios, what kinds of negotiations and what kinds of compromises they engage with. And then the other project which is related to the themes of the book is to look at um, higher education explicitly of creative industry workers. So people doing degrees in advertising, design, media and communications and things like that to understand how they are trained in the tacit skills, the explicit skills, the technological skills of the kind of work I'm talking about there, but also how they're persuaded to think about their working futures. So how is flexibility taught and embedded or is it embedded in the curriculums that they're part of and I think those pull out different themes that are within the book and that yes that I will be writing about in future. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host Dr David O'Brien. On this episode I was talking to Dr Lynn Passenger about work, consumption and capitalism which was published by Palgrave Macmillan. 